Ed Lynch in three, two, one. of the Pottercast. I'm joined by Ed Lynch, Ed, uh, famous former Cub pitcher, and of course, uh, I, Ed, man, I watched that that uh, that documentary on the Mets, and, and you were great in that, man. Well, I, how, I mean, how cool was that to be a part of? Uh, it was really great. I mean, it was unexpected. I was in the office here, and I got a call from New York. Uh, Jay Horowitz, who was the PR guy there for 100 years, said, uh, <laughs> right. ESPN is doing a 30 for 30. Would you be interested? And I was like, absolutely. And they, so it was during COVID, so they sent a, a film crew out here and they got a room at the uh, resort uh, close by the sanctuary. Beautiful room. All the furniture was pushed against the walls, had a chair right in the middle. <laughs> and I sat in this big chair talking to a, a laptop with a gentleman in, in New York. And I sat in that chair, chair for four hours and 12 minutes. I timed it. <laughs> he timed it. And, uh, you know, he was at the end. He was amazed I could remember so much stuff. And I said, well, that's not the kind of group of people you forget anytime <laughs> soon. <So. laughs> well, that was like the most recent thing. Obviously, we'll talk about your career, um, you know, drafted by the Rangers and then debuted in 80 with uh, the Mets and then traded over to the Cubs. And a lot of people remember you. For the Cubs, I don't just there's so many people love the Cubs, whether they're Cubs fans or not. There's something about that that team that they're just like they love it. Um, but I mean, you played more for the Mets than you did for the Cubs, but people somehow seem to remember you as a Cubby guy. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you a quick story that shows just how popular the Cubs were. We were playing the Astros in the Astrodome in Houston, and it was the last game of the series. And I went out to the team bus, you know, we're going to go to the airport, and there were about 200 people out there wearing Cubs paraphernalia and hooting and hollering. So I started signing autographs, and I said to this one group, you guys from Chicago, no, I've never been. I said, well, how the heck did you become a Cub fan? They all said at once, Harry Carey. <laughs> because you get home from school when you're in seventh grade, and it's a Wednesday afternoon, and you turn on the TV, and it's either soap operas or the Cub game because yeah. they're the only team without lights, so they played every afternoon. And so they loved Harry, and... Harry Carey created more Cub fans than any other player, executive, announcer for any team, I think, ever. I mean, he was he was unbelievable, his uh, appeal and his popularity. Yeah, it, I mean, back in the day, it wasn't like you could just turn on and pick from nine different games or every game was on the MLB network. Like, they got huge because they started their own TV net. The WGN started putting them on and all those guys and then TBS for the Braves and Many times, I was in Kansas City, I couldn't get the Royals half the time, but I could I could find the Cubs or the Braves. No, oh, absolutely. And, you know, the Mets were smart, too. They started early. WOR, we were on basically national television every night in the mid-'80s when we started getting really good. And so our following exploded. Um, you know, you say I'm no more as a Cub, maybe in Arizona and maybe in Chicago, but when I go to New York, it's Yo Eddie, you know. <laughs> A Met pitcher, you know. Now, you were born there, right? In New yeah, York. How, how long were you there? Because uh, I know you went to high school in, in Florida, right? Yeah, I was born in Brooklyn, New York. I was the youngest in my family. All my older siblings remember Brooklyn. I don't. And then when I was two, we moved to Westchester. My dad worked for IBM, uh, which stands for I've Been Moved. And uh, <laughs> so we spent six years in Port Chester, three in Poughkeepsie, one in Mamaroneck. And then when I was 12, he became chief financial officer of the late great Eastern Airlines. So oh, wow. we moved to Miami, Florida when I was for eighth grade. Went to high school in, in Miami and spent my off seasons there as a player, obviously, because yeah. of the weather. But uh, yeah, but I, you know, I'm, I'm a native New Yorker and, you know, everybody in my family is older than me and they're all native New Yorkers. So I have a lot of New York in me. Yeah, we have that in common. My dad, not Eastern, but a late great. He was TWA. <laughs> so, <laughs> so many late great ones, man. That, that were big. Oh, you know, huge. I mean, they were the big ones back then. Absolutely. You know, great companies to work for, too. Oh, my gosh. Until I mean, they I, started getting raided. And yeah, stuff. you know, I still call the building in New York the Pan Am building. Right. It's got some different name <laughs> on there. But, uh, yeah, those were great airlines, and they were huge Yeah. Uh, at a time where flying was kind of glamorous, you know, and now it's like riding the bus, so. Yeah, it's just common. Everybody does it. That's right? absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, um, always baseball. Did you always love baseball as your main sport? Did you play all other sports growing up? What kind of what type of kid were you? Well, I played basketball. You know, and then all of a sudden I had a growth spurt when I was 15 years old. Went from six one to six six, basically. 
And uh, Mm, so I I played basketball was my primary sport in high school. And in Miami, when you're playing basketball, the season ends at the end of February and the baseball team's already been playing. Mm. So I missed, I was all state in basketball, but I missed probably the first third of the season in baseball. And uh, we went to the state championship game, but I went to the University of South Carolina on a basketball scholarship. So I played there with some pretty good players. Uh, Brian Winters, uh, Alex English, Hall of Famer, Mike oh, yeah. Dunleavy, longtime coach. <laughs> really? Yeah, and then I, then after the baseball season, my freshman year, I walked over and asked for a tryout, and Bobby Richardson was the baseball coach. And, oh wow, really? Yeah, and he said, uh, he, in coach speak, he said, uh, I don't have any uniforms left, meaning, <laughs> meaning no. like go away. <laughs> you you can't know? try out. <laughs> so yeah, so I went and told Frank McGuire. So he called Bobby Richardson, and I went over and threw for him. And I think I threw harder then than I did in the big leagues because I hurt my arm in college. And mm. I threw one pitch. He goes, "I just found you a uniform." <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So we we had great teams in college. We lost the national championship game twice when I was there in Omaha. Um, we were number one ranked for several months during my time there, and. Um, so that, but I kept my basketball scholarship and played baseball. You know, yeah. that was pre-Title IX, so that kind of stuff went on back then. That was then. okay, yeah. How was Bobby Richardson as a coach? I mean, the great, you know, second baseman for the Yankees. He was great because what he did was he recruited really good players and good people, and then he just let us play. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't so structured now. I mean, we, we get players out of college now in, in professional baseball, and you almost have to teach them how to play the game of baseball. They're so overcoached from the time they're eight years old all the way through college. You know, there's no – you don't get a feel when every, someone's telling you what to do. Go to, go to first and take a left-hand turn. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost that degree of coaching. So we have to kind of help them unlearn some things and, you know, help them learn how to play the game instinctively. Why so, do you think that over – I mean, when did that come into the game, do you think? I, I would say I would say probably in the early 90s. Okay. I, 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 don't, I don't know what triggered it. Um, you know, I know uh, some of the teams out west um, started like heavily coaching Stanford, UCLA, USC – I doubt Rod Dado was, you know, right, calling USC, pitches yeah. for their pit for Tom Seaver, you know. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but yeah, it seems to be a trend. I'm not, I'm not knocking it, but sure. it's just, it's the truth. You it's ask any way. scout, you ask any baseball executive, you ask any guys that went through it and get and go in the pro ball. It's a totally different animal when they get there. They just can't believe the differences. Really? Oh. What What are the main differences? I mean, obviously, there's a talent. Yeah, everybody's really good there. But. Well, I mean, because of Title IX, college baseball has gotten very white, mm-hmm. you know. And um, you walk into a clubhouse after signing your first professional contract, and you're in a room with a ton of 18, 19, 20-year-old Dominican players who mm-hmm. are incredibly talented, yeah. physically talented. Yeah. And they're speaking their language, and it's a little bit of a culture shock for a kid coming out of Division One college baseball. Mm-hmm. And then you see guys that run faster than you. They can throw harder than you. They can hit the ball further than you. And you just have to use your guile and your instincts to get ahead. And that's why it takes them a little time coming out of a college program to separate yourself from the guys who are more talented than you by your brains and your instincts. Mm-hmm. And so the overcoaching that you talked about and pointed, that, that's kind of where you lose a little bit of your own brains and instincts and your own feel for the game because you're basically waiting for the coaches to kind of tell you, hey, this is I want you to play in this situation. Oh, absolutely. This is what I, I want you to do on this pitch count. I, I remember we signed Josh Donaldson when I was with the Cubs, second round out of Auburn, big program. Yeah. And I was there for his first professional game in Boise, Idaho. So he goes out there, got there that morning. He's in the lineup. He's catching. He goes behind the plate, and he looks in the dugout. And, the, and For the sign? He, yeah. And <laughs> the coaches you know, got his shrugging his shoulder, like, what? So he calls timeout, and he runs over and goes, what do I call? And he said, oh, he goes, oh, I forgot. I forgot you're just out of college, and, you know, really? I, didn't, I didn't know what extent your coach was calling pitches. So yeah. he said, just call fastball low and away till you get two strikes and call a breaking ball in the dirt, you know, and, and then we'll, we'll work on it later. So he ran back there and put down the fingers and, and learned that way. So it really was an oh, really? eye-opener for a lot of us. I mean, a, a yeah. really good player, future MVP, 
coming out of a really good uh, Southeastern Conference school who really didn't know how to call a game. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's, it's very rare that a college catcher calls his own game. Oh, yeah, very rare. You know, and, I mean, when I played, everybody do. did it. Right, yeah. It, well, the pitcher called the game. Right. You know, but now it's all coaches. Yeah. And they have the, the Tom Brady uh, arm cardboard thing yeah. on their arm. And they look at the it. The coach and... goes, you know, 232. So he looks 232 yeah. slider, you know. Well, so. and that's part of, I mean, you know, all this kind of goes together. That's part of the slowness of the game, no too. Doubt. Some no coaches, doubt. Uh, you know, I do a lot of GCU games, and, and they call them from the dugout. I think they had, I think when Avidia was there, they might have let him call a few games. But um, they, they would call them, but they do it really quickly. But there's other coaching staffs that, oh, it's just, it takes forever. And God forbid somebody shakes somebody off and yeah. you got to go back to it again. Yeah, I don't know? even know if they're allowed to shake off. But you're right. It's, anything like that will slow down the pace of the game. So uh, that's why I don't believe in it. Yeah, in that. And, and uh, learning to do it exactly. from a young age and just taking your lumps if you – and to have the coaches talking to you afterwards, hey, why'd you call that pitch there? Yeah. Why didn't we do something like this? Yeah, every game, like you said, even while well, they don't play fall baseball anymore, but we used to do that in the fall a yeah. lot. You know, we played 40 games in the fall. Mm -hmm. But now with the restrictions, they can't. And so every win is like the seven, every game is like the seventh game of the World Series. Every yeah. game counts now. So you can't really practice a lot of that stuff. Yeah, it is interesting because, you know, when I went to GCU years ago, they were NAI, so they played, I think they played 50 or 60 fall games. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, my buddy, his freshman year, he played like 132 games totally. <laughs> Dude, you're like double A, like you're, you're A ball. It was almost like professional in NAI back then. But yeah, with Division One, with all the restrictions and they, they only get two, two coaches get to be paid after the head coach, it's, it is making it difficult because... Some teams are trying to figure out, okay, how can we get like 40 or 50 kids in our program so we can play against each other in the fall and have competitive games? Because I think you get – I know the GCU's playing like five or six fall games against other teams, a couple yeah. of series, and that's all they get. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, if, if they could have no limits on it – I mean, obviously you want to have some sort of limits, but there's so many quality junior colleges oh. here in Phoenix that you could play – 50, 60 games against quality competition. And every all the players would love it on both sides. Yeah. But, you know, the NCAA and their yeah. wisdom, if you want to call it that, <laughs> um, has decided to do some pretty goofy things. Yeah, yeah. So what was it like for you? You, you, were, you played at uh, Christopher Columbus High School in Miami, and you go to South Carolina. How was, how was Miami and South Carolina <laughs> different back in that well, day? Well, this is 1973, so <laughs> it was a while ago. But I, I had a hard time understanding what anybody was saying for about – a month. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, accent I did that accent. <laughs> and then, you know, after a year or so, I'm talking like them. <laughs> but as soon as I opened my mouth, I was labeled, you're a Yankee, you know. From Miami. Well, Miami, but, but had I had that. a New York accent. Right, right, right. You know, and so as soon as I opened my mouth, I was a Yankee. Yeah. I mean, they were still fighting the Civil War back then. You know, I mean, it was, you know, Yankee go home, damn Yankees, that kind of thing. Really? Oh, yeah. It was it was a different time. Yeah. But now it's a, what they call a bunch of halfbacks now. The New Yorkers that went to Florida and only made it halfway back. Oh, is that what they yeah, call them? Yeah, they call them halfbacks. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. But it's a, I had a wonderful time. Great people. Very friendly. Very give the shirt off their back. Uh, great facilities in South Carolina. Uh, beautiful basketball arena. Great baseball field. Great fan support. And now it's gone. It's like uh, it's it's like uh, you know a campus on steroids now because it got into the SEC. They have one of the biggest basketball yeah. arenas, the base one of the biggest baseball fields. The, the football stadium holds a hundred thousand. So it's a it's a monstrous school now. Yeah, yeah. What was Omaha like back then? Because you know now it's it's very popular, very famous. Everything's televised. People make the trek there to go to the games. What was it yeah. like when you went there? Uh, it was it was good. It was very popular. I remember in 75, Brett Musburger was in, in our clubhouse, hmm. and that was a big thrill for all of us. You know, a famous broadcaster. It was on CBS. I think they, they televised the title game. That was it, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but was that back you, where you played and it was just a one game in the title game? Or did uh, they have this, No, did one it, game. It's just one a game. one game, right? And, uh, yeah, we, we – uh, I remember we lost. They drew a bye. They did the byes by. They put three envelopes on the ground. I remember it was us, Texas, and Arizona State. 
with the three teams remaining. So one team yeah. was going to get a bye. They didn't look at like matchups and <laughs> runs against. Analytics. Well, they didn't look at <laughs> analytics. I remember the trainer for Texas went up and picked up the first envelope, opened up and said, we got it, the bye. So we the just trainer. walked away. We did the trainer. <laughs> I'll never forget that. Cliff Gustafson, the coach, yeah. oh, sent yeah. up the trainer. A great one, yeah. Yeah, and then so we beat Arizona State to eliminate them. I thought they were better than us, but we just played really well. Yeah. And then the next night we lost to Texas. They beat us pretty pretty handily. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, you know, th- this year, obviously doing the GSU stuff. Andy Stankwitz went over to USC, and USC has fallen on hard times. And it's funny. I was talking to a kid who was like under thirty years old, and as as they were like, "Why would Stankwitz go to USC?" That was their question. And and he goes, "You know, I did some research. Do you know USC and ASU used to have really good baseball teams?" <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like. Yeah, they, it was them and Texas and maybe LSU and a few teams. But the SEC wasn't this massive baseball. It was a lot of it out west in Texas. And oh, USC absolutely. was the king. You know? Well, it was UCLA in basketball and USC in baseball. Yeah. They seemed to win the national championship every single year. Yeah, and, and Texas uh, was always... Texas was always very Cliff good. Cliff was a, a really good... He had a good, great program. Oh, I mean, he was there for years. Well, if you can't recruit... And then Augie the after him. If and, you can't recruit in Texas... I mean, yeah. you can't recruit anywhere because every kid in Texas wants to hook them horns, you know, go to UT. Right, right. And, you know, so he took junior college guys. He took high school guys. They were always very, very good. Yeah. Very good. Very competitive at that at that top level. So then you get drafted by the Rangers, right? Yeah. What was what was the biggest difference? What was the biggest change? Where did you report to? I went, to, I went from the College World Series to uh, Sarasota, Florida. Sarasota, okay. And it was the Gulf Coast League. We called it the Gulf Roast League because it's hot <laughs> and humid. And you That was like July? Uh, I got there in June right June, after the yeah. College World Series. And, you know, rained every day, mm-hmm. 4 o'clock, and then we'd go out and, and play. We'd hit early and then go out and play. But it was uh, back then there was only four teams in the, the Rangers system. The rookie ball were – just about 95% of the draftees went mm-hmm. to the – so I when I got there, there was a bunch of college pitchers there from all the big schools. So they had a rookie team in Sarasota. They had an eight-ball team in Asheville, North Carolina. They had a double-A team in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and a triple-A team was in Tucson. And okay. So as a college senior, if you didn't make that next level the next year, you were released because they, they didn't have, have enough room. teams. Yeah. You know, I think there, there there were much much many fewer teams then than there are now, even after the contraction, mm-hmm. because there's more major league teams, obviously. Yeah. And teams, some teams have, you know, I, I'd have to look at the system, but uh, back then, I, nobody had two A clubs back then. Right. You know, and when I was a farm director in San Diego, we had three A clubs, three yeah. full season A clubs in three different time zones. Yeah. So. You know, you'll have a 27-year-old guy getting the double-A for the first time. You know, and back then, if you didn't make the next team the next year, you're gone. It feels like it's starting to, with the contraction, kind oh. of revert back to that. Oh, I was it talking sh- to a scout sure out at, we are up at Sacramento State, and Richie Christensen's got a great program up there. And they had this kid who was leading the whack in everything. But he was a fifth-year senior cause, and had his COVID year. And I was talking to this scout, and I'm like, who you, I love to talk to these guys because – Pro guys and pro scouts see the college game totally differently. It's not about what are you doing right now. It's yeah. where are you going to be in three or four years. What That's right. And so I talked to these guys, and he mentioned everybody but this kid. And I go, what about so-and-so? And he goes, he's already 24. And I was like, so he's done? He goes, he should be in like double A by now, you know? Or the big or, leagues. Yeah. You know, I was so a college goes, senior, and I signed, and I was in the big leagues by 24. So um, – it is so hard to get signed right now mm-hmm. by a, a, an affiliated major league affiliate team, you know, by a major league team. There, there's only 20 rounds in the draft. Yeah. Everybody after that, there's a cap of $50,000, I think. Yeah, for free agent signings. Yeah. yeah. And they've, they've cut down on the number of teams. They still want to cut more players. Now they're cutting down to get back to levels that are, like you said, players per team. Is going to be pretty similar to was like it was in the mid '70s when I signed. Is that just a money thing? You think? Or, yeah, I, I mean, think did so. They, did they grow too big? I mean, it, yeah, they got way too big. big. Oh, they right? got it's way. Kind of they got way too big. And guys some of hanging these, on in their and some of these cities didn't old. really deserve a team. The stadiums weren't up to par. Yeah, and you had players signing that didn't deserve. But it, they, it went from too big almost now too small they readjust, in terms yeah. of. So it is very difficult. And now now you'll see the proliferation of the the independent leagues. Because yeah. where else is a kid going to go if he wants to play? Which will actually be kind of cool for some towns that can really truly support it. You oh, know? sure. Because there's nothing like, 
minor league baseball in a town that loves it. Absolutely. <laughs> That's know? right. You know, it's the, the prices are reasonable. Right. Free parking. Hot dogs, you got a guy down in the right field corner with a grill. It's the really food, your The food team. is better, and I, it's your team. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I mean, they're they're pro players, but they're also guys you see out yeah. walking around. That's right. That's right. It's you get up fun. close to them, you know. Yeah. And, you know, they've done surveys, uh, people coming out of minor league parks. There's something like 20% of the people could name one player on the home team and like 1% could name a player on the visiting team. But 98% knew the name of the mascot. <laughs> right. So, I mean, there's a lot of sideshows going on. It's a lot of fun. It is a lot it's of fun. It's an event, yeah. And that's why, you know, a thing like the Savannah Bananas, you mm-hmm. know, that it's it's hit a hit a chord with people, you know. They, yeah. it, baseball's supposed to be fun. Yeah. The game's gotten to the point now, Michael, where it is tough to watch a game. It is tough yeah. for me to watch a game. Nothing happens. Just because it's so regimented? So well, no, just... when, when you have pitchers throwing every pitch as hard as they can. Mm-hmm. And every hitter swinging as hard as he can with an uppercut, you're going to have a ton of walks and a ton of strikeouts. Mm-hmm. That's just the way it is. Yeah. You know, it used to be I was taught to pitch to contact, make the guy put the ball in play. Yeah. That's the way we were taught back in the for a hundred years. You know, and and so if you have a two-one pitch, you're going to throw a strike. You know, you're not going to go three and one, three and one. You don't walk anybody. You're not going to try to strike people out. Mm-hmm. A two-two slider in the dirt. I don't think I ever did that on purpose in my life. Two two really? is an action pitch. You didn't try to get him to chase. You have to throw a strike. Zero oh and two, one and two, yeah, but not two and two. Yeah, because three and two is a hitter's count, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So the game has changed. We used to pitch to contact. Plus, you know, without sounding campy or old-fashioned, you know, guys would shorten up a little bit with two strikes and put the ball in play. Yeah. Especially with men on base because anything can happen. Nothing good can happen if used you strike to, out. Used to choke up when it was a pitcher's That's right. count. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I remember when I was growing, and I'd never played at any high level, but it was always the, the, I, the best hitter on our team. I remember one time I was like, dude, what do you do? And what's your approach? And he's like, he's like, first pitch is mine, man. I'm, I'm going for the fence. He goes, after that, then I try to hit the ball. Exactly. I, try to, I try to get it going. But he goes, you know, my first pitch, he goes, I'll swing out of my shoes if I get a fastball. Absolutely. Be aggressive you know? early in the count. Yeah. And then be, you know, not defensive, but be smart, like your friend said. Yeah, I'm going to put the ball in place. Opposite short field. Enough. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Let's try to get it out there. That's right. Yeah, that was why, you know, of course, I'm a Royals fan. Grew up there, so I obviously love 2014 and 15. But I love that team they had because it was all about pressure. They, they'd hit some home runs with Moose and Haas, but it was all about putting the ball in play, That's taking right. the extra base, stealing, just applying pressure constantly. And they beat the Mets in 15 because Hosmer scored on a play where he should have been thrown out at home, but Duda made a bad throw, and they – they knew he wasn't a great defensive first baseman, so they pressured him and he made a bad throw. And Hosmer scored, you know, home. So that kind of baseball, and maybe I'm just because I'm an older guy, but I, <laughs> I'm I older like you. <laughs> it seems fun. It's fun to me, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, going into places like St. Louis in the '80s and, and Houston, you know, they'd have I'd face take the pitcher out. I would face of the eight hitters. I would face seven guys hitting left-handed and one big right-hander in the middle of the lineup. Mm-hmm. Whether it's uh, whether it's Jack Clark or someone like that, and and you had you had like three or four guys that were natural left-handed hitters, and then the other guys were switch hitters. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you're facing, and they all could run, yeah, and they were all good base runners, and they all they didn't strike out. So I remember I pitched a game in Houston. I won like six to two. I went nine innings, gave up like eleven singles, mm-hmm. you know. And I, did, and I was good at holding runners, and I was quick to the plate, so they couldn't run. So they weren't going to strike out, but I wasn't going to get hurt by those guys, meaning they weren't going to hit the ball out of the park. You just didn't hit the ball out of the park in Houston with your one of those guys. Right, you know, especially yeah. if there was an old saying, if somebody hits a ball directly over your head at, at Bush Stadium and in the Dome in Houston, unless it has a blue flame coming out of the back of it, Mookie's going to catch it. <laughs> uh, you didn't see guys going opposite field gap home runs. And now I see guys, it looks like they're, they're taking an awkward swing or they're fooled or out on their front foot, but they get the barrel on the ball and the ball's gone. Yeah. The ball must be incredibly lively. And all the yeah. ballparks are smaller now, too. Yeah. Yeah. Mookie Wilson. Yes. Yeah. So talk about those Mets teams. I mean, oh, they were. That if, so folks, if you haven't seen Once Upon a Time in Queens, Ed's great in it. Hernandez is great in it. Dykstra is great. I mean, I mean you talk about, I mean... Okay, this is an old guy saying too. Before all the social media and stuff, 
guys could be guys. People could be people. The characters could come out. That's why I kind of like the Latin flair when these guys show up. You know, when some of these guys are like, oh, they're showing people up. I'm like, well, they're acting like they enjoy the game. It seems so robotic. But back in the 80s, there were some characters in baseball, and it seemed like 90% of them were on that Mets team. <laughs> it really, really was. And, and they were, we were the youngest team in the league. I remember in 1984, I was on the bus, and everybody's on the bus. We're going to the airport, and I started looking around. We, out of the 25 players, we had 18 single guys. So 18 single guys with money in their pocket on the road playing for the Mets. Something's going to happen. <laughs> Something crazy is going to so, happen. That's right. But incredibly talented guys. And a lot of guys didn't like each other. You know, yeah. I mean, any team like that, that that's talented, you're going to have guys that don't like each other. But when that bell rang, man, it was, we're the Mets now. I mean, we're together on this thing. Yeah. So guys are giving high fives to guys that can't stand on the field when they do something to win a game. So yeah. that, that's the way we're ultra competitive guys. And that's what you're looking for, guys that don't back down from competing. It's all about competing and wanting to compete. What did you think the first time you met Lenny Dykstra? Oh, I was all over him. He, he came in, he strutted in with this outfit on, <laughs> and he had like these Buster Brown shoes. <laughs> I remember I said, I said Lenny. And he didn't talk with a lisp. And I, I said, Lenny, do me a favor. What, Linfy? I said, go in the bathroom, walk up to the mirror, and take a look at yourself. And then I walked away. He goes, oh, Linfy, you're a hard dude, man. But he gave himself he gave himself the nickname Nails. He gave it to himself. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. So oh, I, was on his, I was on him every day when he first came to the big leagues. Yeah. And then we're playing the Reds in Cincinnati and Mario Soto's pitching and it's like the fifth inning, and it's tied two to two, and he hits a three-run homer off Mario Soto. I was like, "Thank you, Jesus!" <laughs> and after the game, I went in and said, "Okay, kid, you're off the hook. I'm gonna go look for the next rookie." The you next know. rookie. But he was super confident, cocky, but he could play. Man, he could play. Back he could do up. everything. Yeah. I mean, he had pow- he had surprising power. He had some pop. Great base runner. Great knowledge of the strike zone. He would drive starting pitchers nuts. He would lead off the game, and he would see 14 pitches mm. and then walk and then steal second yeah you know and that's the player he was every throw he made had a plus arm was through the cutoff band's chest one hop to the bag had plus range in the outfield obviously a plus hitter and at that time he was i bet you lenny if i was guessing was five nine five ten maybe 150 pounds mm-hmm. skinny but strong and could run and throw and then I saw him four or five years later, and it was like a totally different Lenny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Know? Well, and he's one of those guys, too, that everybody told him along the way, well, you're not big enough, you're not good enough. So he had that chip on his shoulder, too. Yeah, and you know what? I think what happened with him, and Lenny told me this, he uh, he was splitting time with Mookie Wilson in New York. And, and, and I think around the All-Star break, he got traded to Philadelphia. So he goes over there, and he's their guy. Mm-hmm. You know, He's their center fielder every day against lefties, righties, doesn't matter. And on that turf in Philly, in that heat and humidity, he said by the end of the season, playing every single day, he was tired. He was worn out. He had lost weight. He, he felt weak. Uh, he played really well, but he ran out of gas at the end. So he went back to Jackson, Mississippi and found a doctor, yeah. quote unquote. And, uh, you know, he started getting some help. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you look at his year, he had his, the next year, his first year in Philly, full year, the next year, came in 25 pounds bigger stronger, led the league in a lot of categories, like the important ones, run scored, walks, you know, stolen bases. I mean, hit yeah. 300. He was an MVP candidate. And yeah. that was the reason, because he just ran out of gas and wanted to get stronger. But then I think he took it too far. Yeah, right, right. What On that team, too, all those different characters, I mean, you had, you had uh, Doc and Dwight on that team. So yeah. you talk about 18 years old and having money, but then also having kind of the world at your feet. Yeah, I mean, those, those guys were so big at such a young age so yeah. hard to handle and obviously they made some bad choices and it seems like they've come around and, and done well but i mean it's hard to judge anybody at 18 having that kind of money in new yeah. york you know but yeah, what well, were those Dwight, guys you like know, straw daryl was 23 when he came up okay. so he was you know a little older a little bit older 22 23 um but Doc, dwight was 19 mm. or 18 no 19 and just that good, like the best. 19. Oh, he's so good. But he turned 19 in November. So, I mean, he was a young 19. Yeah. You know? So, um, and, and they didn't really, Straw had to face the brunt of it. 
because every day he had you know 50 guys around his locker i remember like one of his first weekends he came up in may one of the first weekends we had a home uh, series at home they had strawberry sunday first 15,000 people get a strawberry sunday and he was just and he's up. a rookie with like six days in the big leagues. Wow! And the focus on him, I remember the newspaper, and it's it's in the show. I talk about it in the show uh, once upon a time in Queens. There was a headline in, in the Daily News or the Post that said Daryl save us. You know, and I don't know how a twenty three year old right fielder can turn a franchise around yeah. by himself. Yeah. You know, and this is before Keith got there. The month yeah. before Keith got there, so he was the guy, and everybody was looking at him. And he performed. He went out and hit 26 home runs and won Rookie of the Year after coming up in May. So incredibly, incredibly talented. Yeah. Him and, and, and Dwight were just off the charts talented. Yeah. Well, and that, you know, the marketing machine, you know, pushing all that stuff. But how did things change when Keith got there? Because he well, was... Well, I talk about this a lot yeah. in the show because when we... Before he got there, I was there... Before any of those guys got there, I got there in '80, and, uh, and everybody else started coming up after that, or getting traded over, or signed as a free agent. And we were bad in '80, '80, '81, '82, and '83. We were last place, or fighting the Cubs for last place every year, mm-hmm. you know. And I remember, like after a tough game, say in 1983, um, guys would be like, "Yeah, you know, we gave it our best shot, and you know, hey, you know, tough loss. Hey, where are we eating tonight? You know, that kind of attitude." When Keith got there, not when he first got there, because he was trying to feel his way through it. He got there in June of '83. Okay. He kind of that we were we were destined for last place, and he knew it. And he, he was just trying to get comfortable, you know, looking around. He thought he might leave at the end of the year because he didn't want to really take charge. His contract was up, and then they talked him into his father and Frank Cashin talked him into signing and he signed a five-year deal. Mm-hmm. So now he knows he's going to be there. So the first day of spring training in 1984, the message was clear. Losing was not acceptable. Losing was a personal insult to you, your parents, your family. Mm-hmm. It, and, and it just didn't go over well. When we lost, there wasn't music playing. Nobody was saying a word. Mm-hmm. Guys were kicking stuff, stuff like that. But winning became the sole focus. And he... Talk to talk, but he walked the walk. Yeah. So man on third, uh, less than two outs, infield's back early in the game. He's going to hit a 32 hopper to the shortstop and take an over to get that run in. Yeah. You know, he's not going to try to hit a home run or try to hit a double. I mean, he's trying, but he's the, the thing he's going to do is get that runner in from third base with yeah. less than two outs. So he give himself up for the team to win a game. And so we saw that. And so this guy, hey, this guy's not full of it. You know, he's yeah, he's practicing what he's preaching. Yeah, and so and he was right at first base. It's tough for an outfielder to be a leader because you're 200 feet from the the action, you know. Right, right. But he was right there at third first base on the mound, you know, to say something, mm-hmm. you know, high energy, you know, just really incredibly aggressive defensively, very smart at the plate. So he changed the whole culture of that organization. When he changes that culture, and then you got these great, great players that start, you know, they're they're great players, and they get this winning culture. Like, okay, this is how we're supposed to do it. How important is the manager in that? Uh, in that very, very much, very much. But you know, the players really run the club. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first thing a manager is going to do, I what I would do is say if I if I went if I was going to manage the New York Mets right now. I would go in the office, first day of spring training, I'd call in Max Scherzer and I'd call in Pete Alonso. And I'd say, or, or Lindor, you know, one of the Latin players, Spanish-speaking players. And I'd say, hey, you guys, I'm the manager, but this, your, this team is as much your team as it is my team. And, you know, mm-hmm. I want you to work with me. And so you have to be careful how you treat players now. They're a little more sensitive mm-hmm. and uh, everything's magnified. It's on social media. So you need support in that clubhouse when you're making decisions about players. So I would call those guys in and get them on your side. Mm-hmm. And and the kind of player that you want is going to say, hey, I'm all in, Skip. I'm right there. I'm with you. But there are guys that are going to say, hey, man, I don't want any part of that. I, I'm just, I just want to play, make my money, and then go home. Yeah. Which is fine. But your real leaders, the tough guys, Hernandez, Gary Carter, Ray Knight, those kind of guys, they're gonna they're gonna go with it. They're gonna leap at the chance to help the direction of the club and the yeah. way it needs to go. What was that like in the middle of that season? Right, you got traded to the to the Cubs, and yeah. uh, it sounded like from 
on the on the documented that was kind of like where'd that come from like, well i knew it was coming did you know okay. oh sure yeah. i mean i i pitched one game in philadelphia and and i had hurt my knee in spring training and i didn't know if i had torn meniscus and i pitched one inning in philadelphia the next day my knee was like it looked like a, a basketball it was mm. huge so i went in for x or x-rays whatever they did back then and i needed surgery so i had my knee operated on then i rehabbed it with the team traveled with the team did my rehab and then they sent me down to the minor leagues on a rehab assignment so i went to triple a and they brought up rick aguilera to, mm -hmm. so the 11 10th or 11th pitcher on the staff is a guy of the quality of a Rick Aguilera. <laughs> and I had just won a, an arbitration case against the Mets. And I was making good money for back then. It's less than a minimum now, but back then it was <laughs> right. good money. Yeah. So they, they could switch out me for a guy who's a better pitcher making one-fifth what I'm making. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it was, I knew it was coming. Yeah. But it's still a shock. Yeah. It's still a shock. What's that like? I mean, when you get... Because we tend to think, oh, you're a pro. You just pick up your bags and move across town yeah. and you're good to go. It's just, it's just a job, but it, it's gotta be. It is. It's uh, disconcerting. You know, it's uh, going from a team that's 20 games up in the division to a team that's 20 games or 40 <laughs> games out, you know, it's done, but you're, it's like family. I mean, my quote was, it was like living with a family all year than getting thrown out on Christmas Eve. You know, mm -hmm. it's uh, you're around these people every day of the week, seven days a week uh, for eight months every year so they're they're like family and then you're asked to leave and then i remember i show up at wrigley field there's no lights so it was like That's a right. culture shock <laughs> yeah. you know it was like going we had nobody in the stands i remember one of the games got called because of darkness and i was like what is this a movie i mean <laughs> so it was very disconcerting and and it was i remember i cried one night i, I very rarely cry about anything but yeah. i remember it, it i broke down and my wife and i were going to get married at the end of the year and we're sitting in a restaurant, and uh, the Met highlights came up, you know, and, I'm, and it hurt. It yeah. Hurt. Yeah. What but was, I, but you know, I wasn't going to say that publicly. Sure. You know. Yeah. What What was the, What was the Cubs atmosphere like in comparison? I know you said they were, you know, bottom dwellers, but who like who was on that team? Oh, they they the were still pretty good. They had a chance yeah. to be good because they they still had Rick Sutcliffe and they had Jody Davis and they had Ryan Sandberg, mm -hmm. and Sean Dunstan. Uh, oh, he was so good when yeah, he came Yeah, you know, up. Lee Smith. Yeah. I mean, so they had... They had good players. But they didn't have depth of pitching. Mm. And they they were a bat or two away from from competing. They, they couldn't run. They had a lot of right-handed hitters. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was 4-0 against them in 1985 because I could get righties out because I had a good slider and stuff. Yeah. They just didn't have that, that Bull Durham in the lineup just pitch around him and then go after all the righties. And, and they just didn't have a balanced lineup but they had big names. But yeah. those guys were getting older and they were getting hurt. You yeah. know, guys were on the DL. Sutcliffe was on the DL at one time. So, I mean, they were they were on the downside of, of uh, where they were in 84 when they won the division. Who was the skipper? Gene Michael. That was Gene Michael. Of all people, yeah. An American really? League guy, yeah. Yeah. And I loved Gene like, a, like a, a, an uncle, man, like a brother. He was just a great person. And I was really heartbroken when he passed away. But... He was kind of miscast in the National League. You know, he'd been an American League guy his whole life. So the double switch, things like that. So he had John Vukovic there to help him out, and, yeah. you know, with stuff like that. But Gene was, I, I love Gene Michael. Great baseball man. And then you played one more year there? And then? I, I Half of 86 and then all of 87. And then I went to spring training the next year with the Red Sox. And uh, as a non-roster non guy, did not make the team. And then I, I was done, mentally, physically, and I went home, and then I started law school at the end of August in 1988. Did you, did you have a – as you're playing, I always wonder this with pro players, did, when do you start thinking about next step? Because, like, when you get there, it's all about getting up to the majors yeah. and staying there and winning games. Do you, do you think, like, even back in, like, 82, 83, hey, what, I wonder what I'll do when this is over? Is it kind of like it comes toward the very end you start thinking? Yeah, you start thinking near the end. I never really gave it much thought. You're young. You're try like you said, you wake up every day. I mean, I wasn't Dwight Gooden, I wasn't Daryl Strawberry, I wasn't Keith Hernandez. I mean, I had a battle to stay on that roster my whole career. Mm -hmm. You know, I I've signed, I never signed a multi-year contract until I got to the front office, ironically. <laughs> so, uh, you're just trying to survive. Mm -hmm. You're just trying to figure out how you can add something to this team and, and try to do it and yeah. and you know, be healthy, be available, you know, be supportive, 
and try to hide in the corner. <laughs> when you got to the point that you were done, ready to make a move, why law school? How did that come up? Well, you know, I was like, okay, I'm a 32-year-old guy. I mean, how do I separate myself from every other 32-year-old guy who's been working for 10 years and with experience in the real world? Mm -hmm. I mean, you go and apply for a job, where you been for the last 11 years? Well, it's playing baseball. And planes and trains you know? and buses. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> planes, trains, and automobiles. So my brother was an attorney. Um, you know, I had some money because I just retired. I made good money when I played. Mm -hmm. So I made that decision. And uh, and I'm glad I did. Yeah. I'm glad I did. I never practiced law, but, you know, when you put that on your resume, people think you're a lot smarter than you really are. <laughs> <laughs> looks good, those initials. It does, yeah, it does. After your name. So then was it right back into baseball in front office capacity after oh, that? You, oh, before that, I, I got hired by Joe Mac. Joe McElvain was the... Uh, he was like the assistant GM all my years in New York, scouting director. He mm -hmm. drafted all those guys. He mm -hmm. was brilliant. So yeah. he was he was labeled like the baseball guru back then. And then uh, in October of, of uh, nine, 1990, he became the general manager of the San Diego Padres. Mm. And he called me up and said, would you be interested in being the director of player development for the San Diego Padres? And this is in October late October, and I'm going to graduate in, in December because mm. I went all summer long, so I'm going to graduate ahead of my class. Mm -hmm. So I took the job. So mm. my last month and a half in, uh, <coughs> excuse me, two months in law school, I was getting paid by the Padres. Oh, nice. And and, uh, and as soon as I finished school, flew to, flew to uh, San Diego and uh, started my job there. Yeah. What was that like moving to that side of things into the front office? Uh, it was it was a shock, really. I mean, now you're responsible for 180 players, yeah. you know, all over the United States and and the Caribbean and mm -hmm. South America, you know. So the responsibilities were incredible, and this is before. I mean, I had a cell phone, but everything was voicemail back then, <laughs> right? Voicemail. Yeah. So if I'm driving down the street and I see, and I didn't have a cell phone my first year or two. They really weren't out that much, but uh, whenever I saw a phone booth or you know a, yeah. a payphone, I got my calling card and I call into my voicemail. Yeah. And and every day I had we had seven teams, so I had seven reports from the manager, you know, on last night's games. Mm -hmm. So if our shortstop got hurt in Charleston, I got to find a shortstop somewhere to fill in, or and you know try keeping three A clubs pitching staffs healthy. Oh yeah, you know it's it's very difficult. So I was, I never worked that hard in my life before yeah. or since. Did you enjoy it? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. And in a lot of ways, ironically, I thought I had more authority, and the players would listen to me more when I was a farm director than when I was a general manager. Why is that? Well, because guys, what am I going to say to Ryan Sandberg? <laughs> you know, keep it up, kid. Hey, keep <laughs> yeah. Hey, great job last night. <laughs> You know, I, I'm not going to get on him if he doesn't want to ball out or something like that. That's not my job, and I would never do that anyway to a guy yeah. of his caliber. And, and your roster is set. In the big leagues, you really don't have a lot of flexibility. You have ownership telling you, here's the number you have to come in at. We have guys with multi-year deals. So you don't really have a lot of flexibility. But in the minor leagues, oh, oh yeah. you can do whatever you want. I mean, you have a lot of authority. You have a lot of... Uh, flexibility and latitude to, to do things. You know, you can move a guy up to double A. You can move a guy down to A ball if yeah. they're not doing what they're supposed to do. In the big leagues, you're kind of stuck. Yeah. You can't really do much with guys. I don't know if power is the right word, but there's that power dynamic shift, right? Oh, when, absolutely. Yeah. When it probably is the right word. When, well, and plus when the, the guy media, gets up there. And... The, the most difficult part, you ask any general manager from my era, I don't know what it's like now. In my era, when you're in one of the largest media markets in the world, mm. I mean, that takes up so much of your time, and it's the most unpleasant and toughest thing to read in the paper every day that you're the village idiot. And then you have to be nice to that person when they come in that day. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's tough. As a player, you can, you know, yell at them, they can't really touch you, but yeah. I, I, gotta, I need those people, you know, right. and I'm working for a newspaper, Chicago <laughs> Tribune. That's, that's they true. own the yeah. team, you know? Yeah. So we had the Tribune, who was very tough on us to maintain their integrity. And then you had the Sun Times who hated us because we we're owned by the Tribune. Yeah. So we're like, it was a, you know, it was a pretty nasty sandwich to tell you the truth. <laughs> You're getting hammered. No <laughs> oh, what. getting killed. Yeah. Then you throw in talk radio. Yeah. Oh, those, those guys when, when are the worst. Up, yeah. <laughs> talk radio, right? 
everybody's got an opinion and now everybody's everybody can got just an hear opinion. It. Well, now, you know, I don't know, I don't know what it's like for those GMs now because now everybody does have an opinion, you know. Everybody can sure. say whatever. I mean, somebody put out a tweet about how great Tony Gwynn was. That's all it was. And they they made the mistake of saying you know, Judd struck out a hundred times this year. Gwen didn't strike out a hundred times in like ten years or whatever, yeah, something yeah. like that. And all the people, like, you're a moron, you're an idiot. Gwen never hit as many home runs. It's like the point was, Gwen was a fantastic hitter, and he back in the day they didn't strike out. But now everybody can say sure. whatever they want, and you're always an idiot because yeah. they're never going to be like, hey, great job. Yeah. Great. Well, and plus, you know, I see a lot of uh, you know GMs making announcements through email. You know. Bill, we acquired this player. I couldn't do that. I yeah. had to face him. You know, I had to go into a room with a hundred people and say, "We just signed this guy as a free agent." And yeah, take it just takes up all your time, especially in the winter time. That's when you work. You're mm-hmm. working the hardest in the winter time. That's why I remember the first day of spring training. I would walk in the manager's office and say, "They're all yours now, pal." <laughs> Who's you? So, so you were you were a farm director. How long did that last? And then three years. Time? And then where did you go from there? Where's I went right? one year to the Mets as assistant general manager. And uh, and then I went to the Cubs. And Who were you working with? Who was the GM at the Mets at the time? Well, Joe McIlvain got fired by the Padres my last year there and went to New York as the GM. And oh, really? he, he wanted me to come with him as assistant okay. GM, and I did. And then you went as And that was GM. one year there, and then Andy McPhail called. And in October of, of 94, during the strike, I got the job with the Cubs. GM of the Cubs. Yes. And how long were you in that position? Six Six years. Yeah. Six years, six and a half. Was, did you enjoy it? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 like at that when you're that age and you're just raring to go. You know, difficult challenges are enjoyable. Yeah. You know, because you're there to meet them, and and you've got to do your work though. I mean, you've got to, as Andy McPhail always said, you got you'll find solace in your own mind. Meaning, there isn't anything anybody can ask me about any decision that I make that I don't have several reasons why I did it. Mm-hmm. You know, so you find solace in that because you've researched the issues to the point where I don't care what you ask me and what your opinion is. I'm going to tell you why you're wrong and I'm right because I've looked at it closer than you have. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the attitude you have to have. Yeah. So then out of, done with baseball after? No, I, I, uh, um, I left the GM job. Uh, after the 2000 season, and moved here and became a professional scout. And I did that for six, six. No, I did that for ten years with the uh, Cubs. With the Cubs. Uh, and then I uh, left to go to Toronto. Was with Toronto for seven. And then as a I scout. A, as a scout doing the same thing. Yeah. And then after the 2016 season, uh, which I still to this day don't understand. Uh, Toronto brought in a new president, Mark Shapiro. This is after we went to two consecutive American League yeah. Championship Series with yeah. Alex Anthopoulos as our GM. And look what Alex has done since. Yeah. And he just pushed him aside, pushed Perry Manassian aside, got rid of me and a couple other veteran scouts. Was that a money thing? Was No, he, no, it was more... It, 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 I understand why they did it. Certainly they're right to do it. They sure. just want to they make sure yeah. that everybody... They, they just make assumptions. They make assumptions mm-hmm. that someone like me is not going to agree with their philosophy, whatever it is. No, I mean the whole, like, why, why, because I had a buddy who's a huge Blue Jays fan, and he was like, they brought in that, his worst carpetbagger, you know, from Cleveland, yeah, and it's like, yeah. you know, he, he was so upset. He was so angry when they made that switch. I think it was, I think it was, they wanted to go more, the, the owner, Edward Rogers, I guess, was the Rogers, Rogers Telecommunications mm-hmm. owned the Blue Jays, and they're a monster company. And someone got in his ear about, hey, you guys don't do enough analytics. I mean, this is after coming off two straight ALCSs. And, you know, you need to get, you know, with the times, you know, mm-hmm. these guys are, you know, these younger guys are, are smarter and they, they know the business better. That's and, what Mark did. I mean, that's how yeah, he, that's did what he did. Teams. Yeah. And, you know, he, he worked for the search committee that, that everybody used for years. I don't mm-hmm. know if they're still using it, but mm-hmm. every general manager was picked by the search committee and it was all the same type of guys, mm-hmm. you know? It was all yeah. cookie cutter guys, you know? Yeah. That's so interesting. I was, I was just having a conversation with the guys about Joe Madden and, you know, he, he was managing, won the World Series, went to Angels out, and he hasn't gotten another job again. And I was like, did he say something wrong? And I, I did notice on there was an, an athletic interview and he talked about how things have swung way too far oh, to yeah. that analytic way. And he had some things to say about the commissioner. So I was like, well, I wonder if he's, 
if he's guiding on gratis or whatever, there's some manager jobs open, so we'll see. But it, it, it seemed like it was like, oh, let's do some analytics. Oh, that's interesting. It was either we hate them or we got to do them 100%. Well, I think there's ageism there, too. I mean, yeah. they're, they, they want young guys, guys that they feel comfortable with working with. And, you know, when they interview, you know, Dave Roberts or somebody like that and says, would you be comfortable with us coming down and giving you the lineup on a daily basis? Or, or work? would you work with us? And he says, wait a minute, I got a chance to be the manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers? Sure, I'll yeah, do that. Yeah, $280 million payroll. <laughs> Aaron Boone, Aaron Boone. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're going to be the manager of the New York Yankees. Will you do this and that and the other thing with analytic people? You know, yeah. it, telling you sometimes who to play, who not to play. And it, that's everybody knows it. Who I'm not your... saying anything that, that's going to be... Yeah. You know, totally out of school, but yeah. there's a there's a, a lot of influence by by those guys, the, the GMs guys. and analytic guys, analytic and... guys. Yeah. Who was you? Who were your coaches? Who were your managers when you were? With well, I, I worked cousin. with Jim Riggleman in uh, in San Diego. He was my AAA manager, okay. and then he went to the big leagues uh, as a manager, and uh, for the for the Padres. So mm -hmm. when I went to Chicago, I wanted Jim. Mm. Because you had worked with him. Yeah, I worked with guy. him. I knew him. He was young and, and you know, he was a good, base, solid baseball yeah. guy. I wanted a guy with experience. You know, he managed a thousand games in the minor leagues, yeah. you know, and then a couple hundred in the big leagues. At that time, maybe a hundred. But, um, yeah, I called up and asked for permission to talk to him. And, you know, Randy Smith was the GM and, and Dick Freeman was a president. And they said... And I knew this was coming. They said, well, we'll $100,000 and, you know, we'll make a list of players and we get to pick one. And I said, I want to talk to Bochi instead. And they said, we'll call you back. And they said, okay, you can have Riggleman. Because <laughs> Bochi was going to be the heir apparent. Yeah, yeah. And, so they uh, already had a plan. They, they had like, a plan. They just want to get something out of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah, they want to get something out of it, which they should have. That's smart, you know, yeah. Yeah, smart. Make the play. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just knew what they were going to make the play. Huh? Yeah. And you talk about <laughs> Joe Madden. How about Bruce Bochi? Bruce yeah. Bochi's been trying to get back in and can't. It's tough now. That was that was whole thing, yeah. When they made that switch and hired Gabe Kapler and, and did all that stuff, it was, it was just so it – was, it was a shock because Boch has been – Great for oh my 40 god, years. Hall of Fame manager. Yeah, and I mean, now he can't get a job. Three, four world, three World Series yeah. every other year with yeah, every other year those guys. 10, 12, 14. Yeah, and they, even the GM um, kind of got moved over yeah, the side. Yeah, and, he did. Yeah, you know, he did. They he did, they did. went young and you know interesting. That's their choice. It's sure. their organization. Do what they want. But you know, it's interesting. A guy like Bruce Bochy can't get a job. And I think a lot has to do with with age. You know, he's he's a year older than me, so mm. he's probably sixty-seven years old. Yeah. And, you know, look at Tony La Russa. You know, the only reason he got that job is because Jerry Reinsdorf insisted on it. I'm mm -hmm. going to hire Tony La Russa, another Hall of Fame manager. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, yeah. he just announced he's retiring. I guess his health is not the best. But yeah. a, a lot of times they don't, want, they don't want guys with that kind of experience who might push back on their ideas. And mm -hmm. I understand that. I yeah. understand that. Did you ever have a manager that you were GM of that you felt comfortable walking in the dugout and telling him who to play? Oh, I never did that. You wouldn't have done it. But Everything like, was a negotiation. What, what would those guys say? Like, what would Earl Weaver say oh, if they God. walked down and said, hey, we want you to, we don't want you to start Palmer today. We yeah. want you to go with Flanagan. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, everything's a negotiation. Yeah. You know, I, I, people thought back then that I would go down over the lineup. Here's a lineup tonight. Yeah. But I mean, I would get the lineup and I'd talk, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And he had all the reasons why, you know? And I said, well, you know, how about this? How about that? You know, so everything's a negotiation. You know? So you'd have those conversations. Every day. But at the end of the day. Yeah, at the end of the day, yeah. it was his club yeah. down in the dugout. I yeah. mean, Andy McPhail used to tell me, you know, when you go to fire this guy, which you're going to have to eventually, is, you know, he's going to say, wait a minute, you filled out the lineup card, fire yourself, you know. You're the one that did it. So <laughs> You gave me the players and you told me who to play. That's right, you know. <laughs> so uh, obviously that's changed. Yeah. There's a lot more input from upstairs about lineups. And yeah. Yeah roles play, players play on a team. Yeah. Last few questions. I mean, you had mentioned earlier it's tough to watch a baseball game now. Do you stay up with it at all? Do you? I, and I, I think this might be because I'm an older older guy, and I'm just like, I, I have a hard time watching it too. Yeah. You know, it, it seems very kind of robotic and this and that. It's just different. I, I definitely watch the playoffs because it, it, it means something every game, so it gets a little more serious. And I have a few teams I like. I like the way the, the Guardians – that's still hard to say. I like the way they play, you know, um, pushing, and I like Tito quite a bit, and so I kind of root since since the Royals aren't in it, and since they fired Dayton Moore and yeah. their manager, they won't be in it again for another twenty years. But 
Um, do, you, do you stay up with it at all? Well, you know, I'm, I'm really very close with Ron Darling and Keith Hernandez, so I mm-hmm. listen to them. I watch. I've been oh, watching. So Ma- I've watched the Met games a lot. They're so good. And my son played for the Blue Jays in the minor leagues, mm-hmm. so we watch the Blue Jays. They have really good young players. They're fun Boy, to watch. They do. You yeah. know. But I've been watching a lot of Met games, you know, and uh, I think Buck Showalter's one of the top three managers in baseball. I mean, yeah. um, does a great job. And, um, you know, they've got an exciting team. They have a great owner who, who gets it. He's in New York. He knows what that means. Mm-hmm. And he's going to do what he can do to make the Mets a perennial power. There's no reason why the Mets can't be the Yankees. There's mm-hmm. no reason. You know, they have the resources now. They have a guy who's willing to dedicate the resources to do what needs to be done. And I can't say enough about Steve Cohen and, and the job he's done and his commitment to the, the Mets' success. Yeah. Does baseball have uh, an issue? I, I was doing it. We just, we just did a, a, a baseball rap podcast the other day and, and put it out. And so doing some research for that, I'm always intrigued by this. Um, so there's 12 teams, you know, in the playoffs yes. from each. And um, nine of those 12 are in the top 12 in payroll. Uh, and, and the only three that aren't, there's uh, Seattle's number 21, Rays are 25, and Cleveland's 28. Every team in the National League except the Cards is in the top seven in payroll. Yeah. Um, it, it feels almost like it's, you know, for me as a Royals fan, we're not going to sniff the playoffs for a number of years, yes. right? Yeah. I still love the game. I still like to watch it when I can and that type of thing. But is that is that a problem or is that just yes. the way it is? No, it is definitely a problem. I, I you know we're the only major sport without a hard salary cap. Um, I remember I remember when the Penguins and the Steelers both won the Stanley Cup and the Super Bowl, and I was thinking, what chance do the Pirates have to to win championships yeah. in, in an extremely small market? With, with extremely limited revenues. So, I mean, how do you go out and compete against the New York Yankees if you're, you know, Kansas City? Yeah. Or you're Tampa. And Tampa's done a f- an incredible job. Because I always thought, okay, if, if a GM's been successful, I think you have to, if you have the fifth highest payroll, you should have the fifth best record or better. If you have the 28th highest payroll, you better not be 29 or 30 and wins, you know? Yeah. If your wins match or exceeds your where you, you rank in payroll, I think you've done an okay job, you mm-hmm. know? I mean, but to, for the, the Rays to have whatever 20-something highest payroll and be yeah, one of the top yeah. one of the best top five teams year after year is incredible. Yeah, their 26-man payroll was $44 million bucks, Counting all, like, injuries, retired, dead money, that they have, they're about $100 million. And you look at... The Mets are two hundred eighty-one million, and the Dodgers are two seventy-four. Yeah, both won a hundred games, so they yeah. they spent their money wisely. Yeah, they did, they <laughs> which did. is good, right? But yeah, it's interesting. It's do you do you like the expansion? Back in the day, you know, it was you won the AL East, you won the AL West, and you played. Now they've expanded. They got the wild cards, even expanded again. They got these first wild card series. Could you see expanding even more, letting more in? There's twelve in now. Out of 30. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I think it's a great idea. I think the commissioner's done a great thing with that. Expansion? You know, it, with expanding the playoffs. Playoffs, yeah, yeah. And it's not just a one-game thing now. Yeah, you know? it's three and, games. And I like yeah. it's three games. So it's going to give a chance for teams who had, you know, maybe no chance of winning getting to a World Series. Look how many wild-card teams have won the World Series in the past. You know, yeah. I mean. There's some good six-seed six teams. No, a- absolutely. I mean, if you're a team. I mean, the Phillies are a six-seed. They're, they're pretty good this they year. They are good. Yeah. And, you know, if you have a couple of good starters in a short series, you could beat anybody. Yeah. You know? When yeah. it gets to seven games, it's a little different. They don't, you know. And, and a lot of these lower payroll teams, they can't afford to make mistakes. Okay? Right. They can't sign a, a, a you know, a, a Hayward to a contract and not have it work out. It would set them back decades. Look at the Rangers. They, they just signed again. They, could, they, signed, they signed Corey Seager to this huge contract. They won like 60 games. Uh, it's, you know, it's, they, they got they a new stadium. Game. They're trying to you know, move forward. They're a big, yeah. they're big market club, yeah. obviously, Dallas. Yeah. New stadium. You know, they're big. They're one of the bigger ones. But, I mean, it, it's, it's hard if you sign someone to a bad contract. And if you're a small market team, and to recover from that. Because yeah. it takes the resources away from other areas. Because that ownership's got to go in there and say, here's your number. That don't you can't go above this number, and you got a third of it with one guy. That's or right. Two guys. He's not performing. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. So that's a problem. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, I, 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 
but grudgingly with some of the changes because I'm an old school like ah, I don't know I don't know but I, I do like the expansion and I'm even I missed the one game wild card because it yeah. was so intense it really Might was not have been fair but it was so <laughs> it intense really was. man I, I remember when the Royals in 2014 I was on pins and needles that one game against the A's and we're losing you know, in the seventh and we get a guy on we steal a base we it was so exciting and I'm like I wonder if maybe they do that they got 12 and now I, I like this three game series now. And, and, you know, the, the better team gets to host all three games. Yes. That's kind of nice. Yes. There's no gap in between with travel. That's right. So boom, boom, boom. Uh, you know, I, I would be all in favor of adding maybe four more teams and do a one game between, you know, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, why not? Just for the fun of well, it. Well, the NBA, it's, NHL, it's, so crazy. it's like fewer teams don't make the playoffs. Right. You know? And hockey, it's like six teams don't make it or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> I know. So at least the fan base is like, okay, we got a shot at this. That's right. Crap. That's right. You know, yeah. and, and you know, a lot of these three game series are going to come down to one game each, you know, deciding third game. Yeah. You know, so it's going to be very intense. You know, yeah. you have to win three game series. You got to win the first game. I mean, in your, in your mind, you better win that first game. Yeah. Especially, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. you're one game away from elimination, especially if you're on the road trying to win. You know, life. the Padres, you're playing for your life at City Field. You yeah. Know? So... Yeah, and it, it makes it makes a huge difference too. I mean, the, the you know everybody talks about it's almost like they painted as a collapse of the Mets because Atlanta caught them. They won a hundred games. Yes, that's <laughs> 101 right. Games. Well, there's an old saying in the in the in the game. I've heard this for decades. Is it's not who you're playing, it's when you're playing them. Mm. You know, if you're playing the Yankees in August, you're going to sweep them. Great. You know, yeah, bring them on. But if you're playing them in in May, you got no chance. Yeah. You know. You're playing the Phillies in May. You're going to beat them. You're playing them in July and August. You're probably going to get beat. So it's yeah. who you're playing. And the only, the only thing that can – one of the things that can really turn that around, if you're like if you're the Mets and you're struggling or you're the Yankees, somebody steps up and does something incredible. So if Scherzer goes out or DeGrom and throws a three-hit shutout, all that talk about their slumping is out the window. It just goes away. Because yeah, I remember we, we would go into – St. Louis, and we'd score an unearned run. We scored two unearned runs. We make two errors. Um, we played terribly. We win two to one because Dwight threw a four hitter and punched out fourteen <laughs> guys. We're like, hey, aren't we good? You know, yeah. we're really good. Yeah, you nice know? to have a guy like that on the <laughs> oh, ball. Boy, it, it covers up a lot of mistakes when you have a guy yeah. dominate like yeah. that. And I think Scherzer and Degrom have a chance to do that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, I do. I do think you know they got to do something about the disparity in in the in the payrolls and things. Um, but also, it's interesting. They're, they're making a lot of different changes with pitching clocks and yeah. no more shift and some of these things. And it always talk about we got to make the game more interesting to the younger generation. And so I don't know what they're going to do. I, don't, I mean, baseball to me is baseball. Yeah. If you make it from two hours and 45 minutes to two hours, how many more people are going to like it because it's 45 yeah. minutes shorter? Like, yeah. I, I, don't, I, don't, game, I don't think it's I don't, a, I don't think it's a function of time because if you watch a three and a half hour game where something's happening all the time, it's fun. It's a mm -hmm. great. It's enjoyable. Yeah. You know, it's like a movie. If you're going to see a good movie, yeah, that's three hours long. It, it goes by quick, and you know you enjoy it. If you're seeing a bad movie that's an hour long, it's like takes forever. But I think a lot of the things they're going to do next year are treating the symptoms rather than the disease. And a disease to me is the approach these hitters are taking and these pitchers are taking. They're trying to strike too many people out and every hitter's trying to hit a home run. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you really want to see changes in the game, make the b baseball like a beanbag. Make it like real soft. Like yeah. only guys like Judge and people like that can hit the ball out of the park to the opposite field. You know, now you've got, you know, eight hitters hitting balls to the second deck on the opposite side of the field and and you're and they're not even taking good swings and and you know so if you make the game where it is very difficult to hit the yeah. ball out of the park you're going to see a big change because geez I have to make productive outs now and a yeah. strikeout is not a productive out yeah, you're speaking my language because I grew up in the year when Freddie Pontek hit five home runs, and that was a good year. <laughs> That's right. Hey, my era, Mike Schmidt would lead the league with 30 home runs. Yeah. You see how many guys have 30 home runs now? Yeah, and, and, and sometimes, yeah, it's hard to because Mike Schmidt, we were just talking about this, Mike Schmidt was so good. Oh, best like, player I ever was saw. So, really? Yeah. Because we were talking about that. We were talking about Arenado and some of the stuff he does defensively and offensively. I think he might be the best player in the league. But you say Mike was the best player you ever saw? The best player I ever had the uh, chance to be on the same field with. Why was that? Just Oh, he did everything. If you, you grade out a third baseman, power, defense, um, instincts, good hitter, uh, put him in the middle of the lineup and carry the team. Yeah. You know, great gold glove. Every, he's like Arenado. Yeah. I mean, I've talked to guys who scouted Brooks Robinson, and mm -hmm. they, they said that Arenado is as good mm -hmm. or maybe better.
Yeah. Because he's bigger, stronger, better hitter probably. Yeah. Although Brooks Robinson was a really good hitter, but Arenado's got a chance to be a, you know, he's down at sea level now, so people are going to give him more credit for what he does offensively. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. No, we had this talk about best third baseman ever. Of course, I'm from KC, so George Brett is the best third baseman well, ever. He's right I mean, there. No, he's right there, man. He was pretty good, I, Thank too. God I never yeah, faced George. He was pretty good, too. Yeah. What, do, what do you think? Last couple of questions, because I'm a Royals guy. You know, Dayton Moore got fired, um, which I was just like, you know, what are you going to do there with the payroll you get? I got you the back-to-back World Series. But evidently, you know, there was something there. And they fire Mike Matheny. And so now they're trying to rebuild again. Like, how, how, do you, how do you approach something like that? I mean, are you, you, have you, what would you advise them to do? Uh, you know. Draft as many pitchers as you can and develop them. Because the only way you're going to win in Major League Baseball is if you have veteran starting pitchers. Mm. And that's why the Cubs won. They went out and spent all that money to sign guys. And that's mm-hmm. why the Astros are going to be so tough and the Mets and, and the Dodgers. You know, I mean, because two things. Number one, veteran pitchers understand how to win and maybe not with their best stuff. And plus, you can pitch them a lot. You can pitch them. Young pitchers come up, they have limits on their pitches, limits on their innings. They're still trying to figure it out. And the season is so long. You're talking about the seventh month of the season is the playoffs. And that's when, you know, that's when everything happens that's going to win you a championship, obviously. Mm-hmm. And by seven months in, I watched Scherzer the other night. He threw every pitch was a breaking ball. You could tell he's tired, yeah. you know. It wasn't that 95, 96, and then here's the breaking ball. I mean, you could tell he's a little worn out, and those guys get worn out. So when young pitchers get worn out, they have a hard time figuring it out. How do I get people out without my best stuff? Mm-hmm. But veteran pitchers have been through it, so they get it. And veteran starting pitching is very expensive, mm-hmm. very expensive. Now you can grow your own, so to speak, but then when they you got to resign them, you, gotta, you can't <laughs> resign them. You know? Yeah, I was, I was just, you know, I was looking at because the Dodgers have a two hundred seventy million dollar payroll with all their injured and dead dead money and all that stuff. But I was looking at their roster, and it's kind of like when the Yankees were in their heyday, you know, with Jorge and Jeter. You know, they would go out and buy some players at the end to make that stretch. Like they went out and got the Dodgers, got Freeman, and they got Turner. But there's a good chunk of guys that are homegrown on there too. Yeah. But they had to pay him. Like when Bellinger became Bellinger, they had to pay him they to had bring him back. They could know? pay him. Yeah, yeah they could. They, they had to pay Kershaw after. He got up to back to his next contract. That's right. And some of these teams, for whatever reason, like Goldschmidt, that the Diamondbacks chose and decided for whatever reason, hey, we can't pay him now that he's Paul Goldschmidt. So they let him go, but you know now they've they've had that gap and they have yeah. to try to replace that. Yeah, yeah. So. It's it, it's tough, you know. I mean, if if you're trying to re-sign your own players or go out and sign a top-notch free agent pitcher, it's virtually impossible if you're one of those teams down at the yeah. bottom. All right, Ed, tell everybody what you're doing now. This We actually met because of this, because That's of right. what you're doing now. Well, I'm part owner of uh, um, uh, KMF Realty, Keep Moving Forward Realty, and Mike and I are talking at our offices right in Old Town, and uh, we're in the real estate business. It's been an interesting couple of years in the real estate <laughs> oh, business since I got my license, and right away it started with COVID, and then housing prices went through the roof, and now rates have gone up, and everything's kind of slowed down, so... I've seen a lot in two years in the real estate business. I mean, I've been dealing in real estate for 40 years. You know, I bought my first house 40 years ago. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I had a pretty good understanding coming in, but it's uh, it's been a crazy ride for the last two years. So I hope yeah. it settles down some. And and I uh, really feel badly for young people trying to buy their oh. first home now. I mean, there's there's a serious housing crisis in this country that's going to get worse. And, uh, and uh, it scares me. It scares me for my kids and yeah. my grandkids, if I ever have any. <laughs> First time home buyers, I remember you, there used to be a decent amount of properties out there. Now you got to have a half a million bucks to get a house, you know? It's crazy. It is crazy and it's sad. It really is sad. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for the time. I've enjoyed the conversation. We'll do it again because I can talk baseball forever. You can talk baseball forever. But I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Sure, Michael. Thanks for having me.